Hi, my name is Alex. Welcome back to Stand Up 24. Uh, this is one of our side piece um, recordings that we're going to be doing. It's called Wednesday Rotor Wash. Uh, the aim of this is really to give you like a clinical update on maybe procedures or anything else that could be changing. I like to call it more of the old ways mythbusters in certain parts of EMS. Um, so without further ado, I'm accompanied with Zane Atencio and Andrew Hassler yet again. Zane, take it away. All right, so today we're going to talk about the new pneumothorax. Has the pneumothorax itself really changed? No, not necessarily. But the treatment has, like most things, they develop. When we get better research, kind of a better understanding. So specifically what I'm talking about today is an open pneumothorax. So what's a pneumothorax? What's an open pneumothorax? So pneumothorax, again, is when we get air into the pleural cavity in our chest where our lungs are, causes our lungs to collapse. So they can't expand how they need to. We can't get that oxygenation, that ventilation we need to, you know, survive. So with an open pneumothorax specifically, we're talking about those patients who have been stabbed, who have been shot. They were all minding their business behind Circle K when this happened, of course. But what are we going to do about it? And what's the risk? So we have a patient, they've got this wound into their chest cavity. So we have to worry about, one, they've got a hole now in their chest. That's a problem. But very, very, very rarely does this not involve the lung itself. We think they get stabbed. Yeah, they've got a hole in their chest, but they also now have a hole in their lung. So we're getting free air in there. The lung is going to start filling with air. The space is going to fill with air, and it's going to collapse. It's not going to be able to expand as well as it could. So what have we been doing for years? What have you guys been doing for sucking chest wounds, the open chest wound? What are we taught? Bread and butter. Three-sided occlusive dressings. Exactly. And, well, what if it tensions? What are we going to do? Nothing. We're going to prevent any outside air getting further in. I mean, it's all based on negative positive pressure. We take a breath, sucks air but, in. But what's the old way of thinking? What are we going to do? Oh. If, if, but what if they get a tension and they've got this dressing on? Oh, we're going to open it up and burp it. Right, right, right. right. burping is like burping a baby. Right, burping a baby with a little stab wound. But... Doesn't actually do much for us. Burping. Not really. How so? Why doesn't it do anything for us? So we're talking about a traumatic patient that could be bleeding in the chest from the wound creation itself. And now we've occluded it, maybe managed to get some uh, coagulation going and formed a clot. And now you're going to burp it and break that clot. Ooh. Not a great idea. Isn't it? Hmm. Also, Definitively, these patients with these injuries, what's the definitive care for them? What are they going to need? They need a surgeon. They need a surgeon. They need... Yeah. Cold, cold steel medicine, bright lights. Right. Steel heels. Steel heels. Um, but ideally, these patients are going to end up getting some form of thoracostomy at some point. So whether that be pre-hospital, doing a needle decompression, doing a simple thoracostomy where you just make the cut to open up the chest cavity, allow some airflow to get back, or actually placing a chest tube all together. With that, um, again, we've always been taught three-sided occlusive dressing, but the recent PHTLS, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support Guidelines, have actually updated to the fact that a four-sided dressing might actually be preferable and doesn't really make a difference with treatment. But again, well, if I have four sides, how's it going to burp? It doesn't matter. You, it's if not they about the burp. It's not about the burp. If they tension, you start seeing those signs of a tension pneumothorax. So what are those signs? Oh, you got narrowing pulse pressure with uh, hemodynamic instability or hypotension. 
tachycardia, hypotension, severe respiratory distress, absent lung sounds. Um, you know, there's all the myths of tracheal deviation right, and right. at that know, point you're a little things late. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't really see those kind of signs. Hypoxia. Um, I've seen PVCs all of a sudden on Altered someone. level of consciousness. Right. Easy one because cyanosis. Go figure. Yeah. Low oxygenation. So, okay. So we're in a needle. Great. And maybe you need a needle again. Okay. That's okay as well. Um, but leave that wound alone. Treat the wound and forget it. They were finding that most of us, I know myself, I'm, not, I'm probably not apt to have time to sit there and burp this three-sided occlusive dressing anyway with probably a critical patient in most cases. So four-sided is going to get left there, and I'm going to probably leave it alone. So why bother? Um, and again, those four-sided dressings that can be made out of commercial devices, plastic, you can use old gauze wrappers, whatever. You, we've all have some tricks. You can throw some petroleum gauze on the hole. Um, and we also have those devices like the halo device, which you can have some that are vented and non-vented. Now, what that means is that they allow air to escape but not get back in after you've sealed the wound. PHGLS does recommend that the vented is preferred because it will you know, let air escape without going back in as we're breathing, ventilating. Um, but the completely sealed one without a vent is just fine and is well preferable. Right. And I mean, ultimately, like we said, if it forms a clot and it does seal itself with a non-venting one, Perfect. It's going to be air trapping at one point yeah. because whether you be ventilating or patients ventilating on their own. Now what? I mean, we've, we talk about burp. I don't think I have a, anybody ever showed me how to do a burp, first off. So you talked about the effective burp. What is the effective burp? Do I push on their chest? Because we're not supposed to do that either. You can actually cause more of a pneumotrauma, but whatever. Right. So that's all. Basically, update it to, you can do a four-sided, you can do a three-sided, whatever you're comfortable with. But the biggest takeaway from all of this is actually doing what you can with thoracostomy or just monitoring. You might not even need to do a thoracostomy. It might be a simple, small pneumothorax. And if you get to the hospital and they still don't have those signs of instability where we need to intervene, don't. Seal the wound. Let it go. The biggest thing to remember is if you have an open wound in the thoracic cavity that is a sucking chest wound, whether it be GSW or stabbing, Cover it up ASAP because negative pressure in the chest will cause more air to go in, thus making the trapping worse. Tension is imminent. Once you've occluded it, if they're tensioning, treat the tension. Needle thoracostomy, two appropriate spots, second or third intercostal midclavicular or fourth or fifth midaxillary. Personally, fourth or fifth midaxillary more preferred, less things to hit. It might be sometimes... A harder landmark to find, but I think it's a lot easier than actually finding anterior if we have some adipose toxicity going on as well and trying to fail for ribs. Andrew? Um, yeah, I agree with all of that. We needle decompressed tension pneumos, not our simple pneumos. I've talked to quite a bit of people, seen a lot of patients that have gotten needles put in their chest that probably didn't need them, you know? You know, patients that maybe had some diminished lung sounds, a little shortness of breath, and, you know, we're sticking needles in their chest when they weren't, like, truly symptomatic from tension pneumos. So I think a lot of people forget the difference between that simple pneumo and that true tension that needs to be uh, decompressed. And it's funny. I think, personally, at least what I've seen in my experience, even the patients that are in between, they're not, there's a simple, but I think it's developing. Patients start exhibiting more and more signs. I mean, we, we'll talk about it in the trauma portion of it. Anxiety and tachypnea are automatically the two earliest onset signs when a patient is actually in traumatic 
um, injury pattern when they're starting to compensate and everything else. Trust me, if somebody's on their way from a simple to a tension, you'll catch them in between where you have more than just one associated sign and symptom with it. They'll be super anxious. Tachypnic is all hell. Tachycardic. They might not be hypotensive yet, but their SpO2 will probably start to drop out. You'll have more than one associated sign to kind of push you into that. Plus, look at your patient and overall presentation. I know we talk about talk, treat, them, uh, treat the patient, not the monitor. But trust me, correlate the two and you'll see your imminent need when you do need to do it. Right. And one thing to kind of add on, since you know we all are flight clinicians, we've got that patient that's a trauma. They're intubated for whatever reason. They've lost their airway. We get up into flight. We've now ascended. So what's going to happen to the atmospheric pressure as we do that? Anyone? Air expands at altitude. So. Yep. So that small 10% pneumothorax may now be that tension. So what are we going to look for on the vent? We're going to look for our high pressure alarms. We're going to make sure, you know, what are their volumes still pulling what they were when we were on the ground? Of course, do your troubleshooting. What else is going on? You know, maybe I'm sitting on the tubing in the vent circuit. But those are also things we need to be aware of and correlating. And that's about it for pneumothorax. Yeah, and another quick segue just to add on to what you were just talking about with um, our vents and positive pressure. You know, um, a simple pneumo can convert to a tension pneumo very quickly when we add positive pressure ventilation right. into it. So Even on the ground. Yeah, that's not, and yeah, ever anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Something to always keep in mind. You know, we get that trauma patient that we intubate, and suddenly they're decompensating. We need to focus in and think, you know, hey, did I just tension this patient with my positive pressure ventilations? Yeah, and to bring it to ground for folks that don't have vents, what's the easiest? Well, where you, if you're bagging them, you know, your manual ventilator, uh, if you're bagging them, watch for compliance. Rise and fall of that chest. You can literally stop and listen and see if there has been a difference. Unfortunately, and once we get in the air, we don't have that privilege because uh, we have to wear helmets. And But... Because we're special, yes. but also safety. But um, feel your compliance. If you're having to white knuckle to get a small breath in out of the BVM, there's something wrong. A, make sure the ET tube is in the correct place, but always fall in. And as Zane said, are we kinking the tubing? Am I even connected to oxygen on that BVM? Am I running it, actually? Besides it being connected, am I running at 15 liters per minute? I always say the biggest thing is we can freak out about anything gone wrong, but you got to keep yourself calm and say, kiss, keep it simple, stupid work from the least invasive thing that you have done to the worst invasive thing, trying to fix any kink or problem in the way. Thank you guys for joining us for Wednesday Rotor Wash, part of our podcast. Uh, we will bring you some more in the future of different topics that we can talk about. And if you have any interest bringing up one of your own topics, please reach us at standup24 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Mm-hmm.